Mike. Camera. Action. Okay in here. Mel. Check this out. here to seduce me? Yeah, well, the way things are going. I thought this might be our last chance to, uh, to dance. Yeah. Welcome back to the Filmography, the show dedicated to watching every credited film from an actor's complete back catalogue, from past debut through to present day, in chronological order. Each episode, I'm joined by an esteemed guest to watch and discuss the next entry from the Focus Filmography and consider how it ranks amidst their career and whether we can trace any typecasting trends or topic traits or theatrical ticks. For episode four, I'm joined by the introduction idol, the herald of hype, the mandatory man of comics and motion, Max Byrne to discuss the fourth appearance of the state and John Carpenter's repurposed Snake Plissken threequel, Ghosts of Mars. We watch, you listen, and hopefully watch along too. So, Maximus Introductorius Marvelous, thank you so much for coming on the show to discuss this mindless motherfucker of a film. <laughs> oh, Jack, thanks so much for having me on. I'm absolutely delighted. Uh, a huge fan of the state, huge fan of yours. So combine the two and you've got a recipe for success. So I'm very, very, I'm very happy to be here. Very happy. I mean, I, I mean, I totally appreciate that. You know, I always take those kind words, but also, you know, coming on for this film perhaps is, and I, I know you were quite keen, which is great. This was one of the ones that didn't get a lot of people initially putting their hands up when I put the list out. So, um, and actually was one of the few I hadn't seen I've, when I went through the list. He's currently got 41 films on release. There was four I hadn't seen, and this was one of them. So, again, take from that what you will. But you had seen it and were somewhat of a fan? Yeah, I, I saw this in the cinemas when it came out. Now, now, bear in mind, in 2001, I actually worked in the local cinema in the box mm. office. So got in to see everything free whenever I wanted. So my my tastes weren't so discerning in mm-hmm. terms of you know, like now you only go to cinema if it's something you really want to go and see. Whereas back then it was like, ah, screw it. I'll go and watch it, whatever, you know, I don't care. So perhaps if I'd have been in the situation I'm in now, my, my sort of uh, eagerness to go and see it might not be quite as white hot as it was mm-hmm. back then. Um, but I mean, 
you know, at the time, obviously, I was a, a huge fan of John Carpenter. This is one of his last, you know, it sounds crazy because it's it's a 21-year-old film, but it was one of his, really one of his last major directorial outputs, really, wasn't it? So, mm. you know, it, it was a not the greatest way for him to sort of <laughs> end his, what at that point been an extremely illustrious career. Um, but I, I do have a soft spot for this film. Mm. Uh, despite its many flaws, which I'm sure we'll get we'll get into a great, great length. It's got a lot, it's got a lot going for it, you know. If if not just for the man himself, Mr. Statham, but it's um it's something I've I have I have like a semi-guilty pleasure thing going mm. on with it, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Carpenter was definitely on his downside at this point, wasn't he? And then it was 10 years, I think, after this, till he made The Ward with Amber Heard, who's obviously very That's right. um, current at the moment for re- reasons we won't go into. <laughs> and then yeah. there was there was nothing after that. So yeah, it's a bit of an ignomious end for a man who just made some absolutely all-time classics, unfortunately. It is really, yeah. And you know, and obviously this film really didn't do well, did it? it was, no. I mean, I was I was reading before it cost so it cost $28 million to make, mm. and its box office was 14. So it mm. literally only made half its budget back, which is, you know, in any in any parlance that's a flop of a film isn't mm-hmm. it so it's a shame it's a shame but i think i think it's kind of found a bit of an audience in the 20 years since i mean he continues to have a, a big fan base doesn't he mm-hmm. out there you mm-hmm. know he, he's he's an icon of cinema of, of genre cinema so there'll always be people watching this film but whether there'll always be people enjoying this film <laughs> is another question is another matter altogether i'd say it's definitely considered a cult classic now i, I would say i think you get that voracious fan base who want to defend it and extol its virtues. And I know Carpenter felt like it was misunderstood himself. He felt like he was aiming for camp cult classic type movie, but because he'd been renowned for the thing and Halloween and straight serious horror, I suppose he felt like it was misunderstood. Yeah. You can see why, can't you? It's one of Sometimes you watch this film and you think, are they being serious here? Are they mm. taking the piss? And then when you think, yeah, perhaps they are. But yeah, I get what you're saying. I think he was sort of found himself caught between two stalls, wasn't mm. he? Really. What people wanted from him and what he was actually serving up here. The two didn't quite mesh, did they? Definitely not. And it watches confused, I think. I'm not sure he was quite sure what he wanted either. He might be, you know, he can come up now and say that that's what he was aiming for. But I'm not mm. sure he had that clear vision myself personally yeah no i would agree with you on that because like you said at the at the, uh, at the top there of the show this was originally was going to be escape from mm. wherever escape from mars, York, I escape from yes escape from mars <laughs> uh, and was going to be a third snake Plissken kurt russell adventure and then mm. you know that kind of got repurposed into what we have whether mm. or that's whether or whether or not that's true who can say but i, I think it it would have been interesting, wouldn't it, to see how different it would have been. One would presume Snake was the Desolation Williams Ice mm. Cube character, wouldn't you? And and how that would have played out with him in that role. I don't know. Interesting. I mean, we'll probably get into Ice Cube and let, let's say he's no Kurt Russell. Let's just let's put a pin in that for now. <laughs> we'll come back to it. But it's also interesting because the Stath was initially cast as Desolation, I believe. And then there was pushback because he didn't have enough star power at this point, which, you know, I can understand from a producer's point of view, it's only his fourth movie. And at this point, you know, to turn it up, which was the, the previous, that had been a flop as well. Obviously Snatch had done well, but he hadn't, pre- hadn't have proven talent in this arena yet. 
So I can see why there was pushback. But, you know, even he, I think, he would have brought a bit more to the role than I think Ice Cube does too. Yeah, I think he's a better screen presence than Ice Cube. There's no mm. question. I mean, I, I'm not knocking Ice Cube. He's done some good stuff over the years. Um, a very one-dimensional actor, but, you know, what he does, he does quite well. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, you can perfectly understand why they made that decision because his star in 2001 compared to Jason Statham's was obviously a lot higher. And so you, mm. underst- you understand the... I mean, it's crazy to say it now, isn't it? When you think yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if, you're, if you're making an action film now and you, you, you're offered Jason Statham or you're offered Ice Cube, you're going with the, <laughs> you're going with the state mm. every time, aren't you? you know, there's no comparison. Now, now he is a bona fide Hollywood leading man, but obviously, mm. like you said, back then he, he had very little on his CV. So it's bonkers. But I would have... In an alternate, you know, multiverse, you know, the multiverse is quite in at the minute. Mm-hmm. In that sort of parallel multiverse, I would have liked to have seen him run with this part and see what he, you know, see what he could do. And you know, Ice Cube could have played his part in this film. You know, that kind of macho cop, mm. you know, with a very, I'm sure we'll get to as well, a very leery. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, easily, and I think it is a shame. And I think, yeah, as you said, in that alternate world where the state gets the part and, and his cast and, you know, follow, he gets followed through. I think it would have been a better film because I think he can do that balance between straight action man, which Ice Cube can kind of do. I think I'm probably less generous than you are towards his acting ability, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> but also Seth can do the campy, he can do the comedy. He can do that, um, you know, Jack Burton from Big Trouble in Little China. He can do the yes. Rowdy Roddy Piper. I can't remember the, his character's name. Um, in, in They Live. Like he can put, he could pull that off much better. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. He's got a lot. Again, people like to say Jay Statham's sort of acting range sort of starts there and ends there. There's not a lot, there's not a lot to it. But I, like you said, I think he has got quite a few strings to his bow, his comedic side. You know, mm-hmm. a show, which, a show, a film which I know obviously will be in a much further down the road in, in your sort of chronological journey, you know, spy where it's an out-and-out comedy, and he's, he's, he's superb in that. You know, his, his one-liners, his delivery, spot on. And, and, and then, you know, moving into even a film like Hobbs and Shaw, which is this stupid, macho action spectacular, which I absolutely love, by the way. Mm-hmm. But in that, the comedy, his comedic timing in that is superb. His interplay with The Rock, it's great. So, yeah. you know, I, again, just... He is a million times better than Ice Cube. Granted, Ice Cube's a better rapper. I'll give him that. <laughs> but... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that said, I've never heard Jason Statham rap of you, you know. No, I haven't, no. <laughs> exactly. Who can say? If it's as mm. good as his dancing, then, wow. you know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe cute. Exactly, yeah. You know, if NWA decide to reform it, you know, and they're a member down, just get stay then. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> But yeah, it's yeah, it's a shame that he didn't sort of wasn't trusted with the, the lead, but it is what it is, isn't it? Mm, it is. So cycling back a little bit, something I always like to ask my guests is how many state films they think they've seen. So as I said, 41 so far. We're gonna get 42 at least during my process of doing this, if not 43, if Expendables 4 comes out in time before I finish. Mm. But we're gonna get his next Sky Ritchie um collaboration, aren't we? Operation something, something. That'll be out oh, yes. film 42 later this year. But how many do you reckon he's in at this point if he's got 41? Right. Well, I was I was looking at this this afternoon at work. I'm, on my mm. lunch, I was looking at his filmography from start to finish. And I think there's, out of those, I think there's maybe 10 or 11 that I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. So obviously nowhere near on your level of stay 
worship. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> um, I, I, granted, there's a couple that I haven't even heard of. Like mm-hmm. th- uh, th- thirteen, was it? Mm. Uh, I'd literally never have heard of that film, and I, I, I don't. I, I trust you've seen it, but um, I have. That's one. That's I, one I have. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there was a few on there I haven't seen. But mm-hmm. I, I aim to re- I aim to rectify that. But it, you know, I do like him. He's a very watchable screen presence, isn't he? He's um, he's a almost a throwback in a lot of ways with his on screen persona, isn't he? That sort of macho action man. But I, I do think he has a lot more depth than mm. some of those guys of yesteryear. So he is a very good presence. And I've, I do I've never watched a film and not enjoyed him in it. Mm-hmm. Even the films he's done that are absolutely shit. Mm. I. I do think he brings something to the table every time he's on. He's a very, he's a very watchable screen presence, isn't he? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think what you said there about the, you know, you, the fact that you've gone out your way to see 30, 31 of his films says a lot, doesn't it, about like his watchability? Yeah, and I think he does. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think you're the first person I've had that that has posited this argument, and you know, I'm clearly I'm on your side where he does have a bit more range than. <laughs> Then the majority would like to, uh, you know, like to award him with, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, it's still not, it's never going to be the next De Niro, is he? It's never going to be the next Wacken Phoenix or you know, whoever you want to pick, DiCaprio, you know, these people who, who are elite. But I think within what he can do, hopefully, this over the next 18 months will prove that, you know, there is some fluidity to, to, to his ability and what he can bring to the screen. And yeah, 100%. Always watchable, as you said, even in the shit films. You're drawn to Statham. And I think you even were right from the start of his career when I went back and watched Lock Stock and, and Snatch mm. from this perspective. He was doing enough, even as an untrained actor at that point, to show that he was going to become somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and when you look at his filmography as well, it doesn't take long for him to get to that leading man status mm. either, does it? You know, with a Without it in front of me, I don't know whether the transporter was his first out-and-out leading role. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll know more than me on that score. But when you look at it, that was maybe what six or seven films into his career, something like that. Yeah, you're spot on. So that's his seventh movie, um, and it comes out only a year after this. Actually, 2001 yeah. was a big year. He had Ghost of Mars, The One, and Me Machine all out in the same year. Oh. And then, yeah, a year later, suddenly he's leader man in the transporter showing off these martial arts skills, people, I, I, we get a little bit in the one, but, you know, really showing off his martial arts skills and how he can be a leading man. Absolutely. Yeah. It's bonkers, isn't it? To think that, you know, when he did lock, stock and snatch, there were those, you know, low budget Cockney gangster cases. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, and, and like you say, in those, he wasn't the, the leading man per se. And the roles he played, he played like a sort of a tough guy, roguish character, but he, there was there was no action in those films, at least not by his character, was there? And it, to, to literally go from those films to all of a sudden be thrust into this world of Hollywood action, it, it seemingly came from nowhere. They're like this meteoric rise, wasn't it? Mm. And, you know, we weren't the only people that noticed it, right? You called him a throwback a minute ago, and he's this co-lead in The Expendables. Or second lead, yeah. I suppose, is maybe what we want to say. Like, Stallone's the lead, isn't he? He's second lead in Expendables. Mm. And look at who he's acting alongside in that movie, like proper elite action stars. And Stallone handpicked him to be alongside him. That says a lot too, doesn't it? Massively, massively. Yeah. And, he, and he holds his own because, like you said, there's icons in that trilogy of films, soon to be a quadrilogy. Yeah, quadrilogy, mm-hmm. that's the word, isn't it? 
there's iconic actors in there, isn't there? You know, you can, you know, pontificate all day as to whether they're great actors or not, mm-hmm. but they're icon- iconic screen presences. And he just is up there with them, isn't he? I mean, he's the, he's the only character in The Expendables that they even attempt to sort of give any depth to outside of being in The Expendables. At least, you know, they give him a go, they give him Charisma Carpenter as a, <laughs> as a, girl, as a girlfriend and show that he has some kind of life outside the mercenary team. Granted, she's sort of disappeared by part three, I think. I can't remember now whether she appears at the bar at the end. I can't remember. I'll have to rewatch that. But, you know, he, he literally had the only character with some meat on his on the bones, apart from, like you said, Stallone's. And, yeah, he can do it all. He's, he's a great action star. And, and, you know, in a in an area we live in where action stars are not few and far between, but there's less of them than now than there used to be. Actors who are out and out action stars. You get actors who do great action, like sort of a Tom Cruise or a Keanu Reeves. They, you know, they have action franchises that are second to none. But they also do other kinds of films, don't they? Where Statham, probably ninety-eight percent of his cinematic output is action movies, isn't it? Mm, yeah, definitely. I think it's a, a great shout, and I think um, that's why Hobbs and Shaw works so well, right? And why they span that off out of Fast and Furious to Vin Diesel's dismay. Because those two guys <laughs> yeah. are really, the, and I know The Rock does more stuff, particularly comedy, doesn't he? But they're probably the yeah. only two I can think of off the top of my head who are, as you said, proper out-and-out action stars nowadays. Yeah, unapologetic, sort of, especially in the era we live in now, sort of unreconstituted sort of men of action, aren't they? Which, mm. again, is, is not something that sort of pervades that much anymore. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll let other people debate that. That's fine, but it's 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 refreshing to see. It's it's pure escapism, isn't it? It is, and it's you know we're of a similar age. It's the stuff we grew up watching. You know, we bonded what eighteen months, a couple of years ago ourselves over many of the sort of films we grew up watching amongst the comics emotion and VHS strikes back community. It's it's for us, really, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, he's he knows what his audience is, isn't it? He plays to his audience. He's. I think he. I think he knows what works for him. Mm. I don't think you'll ever see Statham, especially at this point in his career, where he's. I know, he must be mid fifties now. By this point, I, I would have thought. I think he sort of knows who he is and what he does best. And I don't think you'll ever see him in a film in the in the foreseeable future where you think he's been miscast or anything like that. I think he knows what his strengths are what his audience wants from him and how to deliver it. Yeah, agreed. You're right. You're spot on again. You know you're a man, you see. 50, I think he's <laughs> literally 55, I think. I think you're spot on. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know he was exactly that. I thought it maybe like 53, 52. 67, oh. IMDb says he was born. Right. I, te- I teach no, English, not, not math. So um, I was trying to do that quickly in my head <laughs> as we were talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Your, your uh, math does your credit. Yeah, 55, <laughs> God. God, I'm, that's, you know, thir- yeah, 13 years older than me and I wish I was in a quarter of that kind of shape. I really do. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if I've got a- any kind of, uh, I mean, I'm not going to have it. I don't have it now, but I was going to say in another 13 years time, if I've got any kind of state ability or body, I'll, I'll be happy. And not only will I be happy, other people in my life will be quite happy, I'm sure, as well. <laughs> yeah i mean i i grown getting out of a chair yeah. so my hopes of sort of roundhouse kicking goons and jumping off things and shooting guns i think uh 
that's never going to happen, unfortunately. No. Do you know what? You may be the same. We're going to go on a tangent here. I remember growing up thinking like, oh, why does my mum have to make so many noises when she moves around? And that that is now who I am turning into your say spot as well. It's like <laughs> getting up, getting down, turning, lifting. Everything comes with a noise now for some reason. Yeah. Breathe, breathing, blinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I catch myself doing it as well. And it's, I'm trying to stop myself, but it's, it's involuntary. Oh, no, I can't get up without going. Whoop. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is what it is. It is what it is. So at this point, back in, well, sort of pre-2001, I suppose, when he was cast, he gets that yes. phone call, right? He's been in Lockstock. He had his role written for him in Snatched by Guy Ritchie. They performed that friendship, which is going to continue to the very day, you know, his next movie. Yeah. He's going to take this role, isn't he, no matter what, when he get, gets offered a John Carpenter movie? Oh, why wouldn't you? Mm. That's his age, at that stage of his career. Mm. And, you know, there's some decent names in this cast as well. You, you're taking that all day long. He, his agent must have been superb back in those days mm-hmm. as well. To get him into that situation, get him in front of these people, like we said earlier, to go from what, what he'd done at that point to, to this, he really must have had some great representation behind him to get him into that shop window. But, yeah, why wouldn't you take this film on? Why wouldn't you? And he, it, it's a fun role as well that he has. I bet he had blast making it. It's interesting you say that because I do wonder. I watched the um, behind the scenes, like making of. It's about yeah twenty minutes long, yeah, and he doesn't feature in it at all whatsoever. Right. So it's interesting to to consider like how much he was around on set or whether he was getting on with Carpenter or it's just interesting that and it's a pretty shoddily made making of, if I'm honest. Yeah. But, um, most other people feature at least, even if they're in the background or. But yeah, he, he doesn't feature at all. Right. That's a shame. Unless he, unless he was, you know, I don't know, li- living the method life or something like that. But um, I don't know. I mean, I've never heard any stories of the making of this film involving him as such. You know, I've not heard any of his co-stars or Capture himself say, oh, Jason Statham, what a dick he was to work mm. with. I've never heard any of that. And I've never heard anything from Statham's mouth good or bad about this production either maybe there, there might be something out there i'll have to you know have a look look it up and see if there's anything any comments he made early interviews at this time but um i don't know i just think his role would must have been quite a fun role really you know mm. fire guns chat up women and and just have fun i guess yeah i mean if i'm honest i'm not sure a lot of the people that are cast in this are probably crying out and celebrating <laughs> their, <laughs> their their appearance but as we said, like at that time, you've got to take it. And it's funny you mentioned about the the uh, the, the like the, the manager that you would have or the agent he would have had. Like Dave and I said exactly the same when we were watching Turn It Up. Like how has he mm. got suddenly these rolled in, in Hollywood movies? You know, a year after Snatch, or the, you yeah. know, we turn it up the same year as Snatch, where he hadn't really proven himself yet. He hadn't really shown anything he could do. I mean, I guess he was auditioning a lot, sending a lot of tapes. So that charisma must have been coming through there too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, I'd love to know what was going on at that time. I mean, obviously, uh, I guess as any actor will say, it's all about right place, right time, and your, your face fitting what that particular director or casting director is looking for. You know, it's a look of the draw, I guess. But it, yeah, it was just seemingly just from nowhere, wasn't it? Mm. And weirdly, talking of, you know, the safe look at this point, he has hair. 
<laughs> yes, he does. Yeah, he does. It's bonkers, isn't it? Because again, you'll correct me from because you you have literally seen all his work. Mm-hmm. Has he has he ever? I personally haven't any film I've seen him in other than Revolver, where he wears that really stupid mm-hmm. wig. Has he ever had hair on top of his head other than in this film? I mean, of the three I've watched until this point, and obviously, you know, all we see as we go, memory, like you're right, he gets wiggy in some of his movies. But yeah, yeah. Snatch and Lot Stock, turn it up, no hair. So he was obviously yeah. asked to grow it out for this for some reason. And it does look like that fluffy, fuzzy, you know, like um, like duckling hair, doesn't it? <laughs> like it's that, like it's really holding on to that last little bit. Yeah, it's it's quite weird seeing it, actually. It's quite jarring yeah. watching it for the first time in over a decade because you're so used to his his look is so, so much the same mm. all the time, that, you know, that shaven head. And there he is with sort of jet black hair on the sides and, like you said, a sort of smattering of jet black hair <laughs> on the top. It's just uh, it's a really unusual look. It just makes him look a lot younger as well, doesn't it? It does, yeah. He's one of those people, actually, I think you'd recognise his silhouette. And there's that saying, isn't it? Often, you know, like Indiana Jones is instantly recognisable. And we had that image that was released um, a few days ago um, yes. from upcoming Indiana Jones 5. But they, we talk about actors in, as well. And I think he has that kind of like, almost like hulking shoulder presence, doesn't he? And that big, bald head. I think like you would <laughs> instantly recognise him. And I think maybe that's part of his appeal and how he's caught on and got on to be so successful because... He has this very identifiable, like caricature, I suppose, about him too, doesn't he? Yeah, it's almost his trademark, isn't it? You know, you, you a lot of actors change it up in films, and you know, even leading men, some of them don't, but a lot of them do change their appearance, and you know, might affect an accent, and think. Oh, hopefully, we'll get on Statham's transatlantic, <laughs> transatlantic <laughs> accent. But um, yeah, he he is kind of almost like he's um, a modern day Michael Caine, isn't he? Mm. Looks and sounds exactly the same in every single thing he does, no matter what he's playing. Um, but that's fine because that's part of his brand, I guess, isn't it? That's yeah, brand is the right word, isn't it? He yeah. When you cast him, you're getting Jason Statham. You're not getting an actor. You're getting no. you're getting the Statham, yeah. Which is how yeah. he's, I guess he's become known as the Statham. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. He is what he is, isn't he? He's larger than life. So what do you think of his accent in this movie then? What do you reckon he's going for? It's hard to say because most of the time he he is English in this. Mm. Like he, he is full on this sort of affected Cockney accent that he has some, somehow because mm-hmm. I, I read that he, he grew up in Norfolk or, or yeah, somewhere great, like that. Great Yarmouth, wasn't it? Went to school with Vinny yeah. James. Mm. Right, there you go. So, you know... I've I've spent time in Great Yarmouth because I've got family in, in Norfolk, so I know how they speak there. You know, it's all right. Mm. Are you all right? Are you all right? Are you doing you all right? But and um, they don't speak like you know, fucking, <laughs> fucking this, fucking that. Um, so quite where that's come from, I'm not entirely sure, but whatever, it, it works for him. Um, so yeah, in this film, it's it's mostly that. But then, like he does in a lot of his American films, doesn't he? He slides into that. It's not English. It's not American. It's sort of mid, mid Atlantic, isn't it? It's like mm. he, he doesn't want to commit one way or the other. It, it, it's a strange accent that he does in films, isn't it? 
it's going to get worse from here in some of his roles for <laughs> sure, where he like he pushes it, doesn't he, for a little while in a couple of movies, and then yeah. somebody somewhere says, "Look, just don't bother, just to stick to your own accent." I can't remember the one. I think I think he does it in the one, doesn't he? Probably does because this was early days, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and definitely the first transporter. There's an attempt, but kind of by transporter three. Whether his character's meant to have like moved to England or what, I don't know, and given up. But yeah. the accent's gone by then. Yeah, it's fine. It, again, it's one of them where you can just do your own accent. It, it never, mm. it never stopped Arnold Schwarzenegger being a mm. megastar having the same accent. And they can just write, write your character a reason for having such a distinguished accent. They'll always find a way. Like they always did it with Jean Claude Van Damme as well. Exactly who I was thinking of. Was, yeah. You know, yeah, oh, I was brought, I was brought up in Europe, you know, and all this, and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's 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 fine. But it, yeah, his accent is so muddled; it's untrue. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't find it too bothersome in this movie. I think in my in the back of my head, I've got like a couple of movies where I think it's going to be much more of a feature. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's there's a bit more consistency here. I think I think his character. Uh, is brilliantly named Jericho Butler, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've, I've spent my 42 years on this planet, I've never met anyone called Jericho. No. And it is, you know, it is an ambition of mine to actually meet someone <laughs> and go, hi, my name's Jericho. Um, it'd be great. They must be, in this day and age, there must be some out there. Oh, yeah, sure. Kids, be, kids being named all kinds of weird and wonderful names. Um, you know, I, I remember there was a girl in my brother's class at school called Sunbeam. Oh, but uh, yeah, lovely, isn't it? Yeah, but no Jericho, sadly. No, that is that is the shame. <laughs> yeah, Hope Springs Eternal. I um, mean, interestingly enough, that Dwayne Johnson was called Jericho in Southland Tales, so that they both shared the name Jericho at some point in their careers. Oh, nice. And um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in End of Days is called Jericho. Yeah, Jericho Kane, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a good it's a good name if you're an action guy to be called Jericho. Clearly, um, there's something going on here. Yeah. There is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's but that's that was the only three I think of, other than Chris Chris Jericho. The rest. This of might them. be the next project, though. You know, the side side project, action characters called Jericho. I quite like the idea. <laughs> Oh, I bet there's loads. I bet mm. it, it's, there's bound to be a canon film that has a <laughs> actor called Jericho in it. I'll uh, I'll find that out for you. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. So speaking of his character in this, he is a mercenary. Do we want to call him that? He's, he's part of a, a squad, isn't he? That's sent in to Mars to yeah to to bring Desolation Ice Cube's character back for trial. I want that. Mm-hmm unaware of is that this colony of mars which i said is somewhere like it was it 89 or something like they gave us a random number during the the opening credits and you know the explanation of what's going on has been 89 or something percent terraformed but Mm. what they were unaware of is that there's an ancient civilization underneath mars that has gone extinct but their spirits live on and they accidentally release them to become the titular ghosts of mars yes um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, I love that we've gone in deep in the data, which I think is great. But to think about the film wider a little bit, I don't think John Carpenter was trying very hard in this instance. I mean, obviously, Assault on Precinct Thirteen is one of his. This clearly yes. has echoes of that, and that was harkening back to Rio Bravo, I believe, which is you know, a western, which is one of his favorite films. This is clearly like a western in space. Yeah, 
like Mad Max is a clear influence. And I've heard some people say they believe this influence, Mad Max Fury Road, which I think is an interesting comparison. I'm not sure George Miller watched this and thought, ooh, I, I, I want to make my version of Ghosts of Mars. But thoughts on the kind of gen, general plot, if you can call it that? Uh, yeah, I think that's the... the... The plot is probably thinner than the top of his head yeah. in, uh, in, in, in this film. Uh, there's not a lot there, is there? So it's, it's kind of this weird mishmash of genres. Is, is it a science fiction film? Is it a horror film? Is it an action film? Is it a Western film? Uh, what is it? Well, it's a bit, it's a bit of everything, I suppose, mm. isn't it? Uh, and like you said, it's a very thin plot. There's a, we're on Mars. It's 200 years in the future. Um, there's a you know, Earth has colonised Mars and there's a prisoner there. So they're going in this sort of small police task force of which mm. he is one of um, to go and get the prisoner, transfer him, bring him back for his court date. And like you said, when they get there, it's a case of every man and woman for himself, prisoners, cops, uh, the local townsfolk all banding together, trapped in this complex um, trying to get out alive and make that train <laughs> to get out of the out of the city. Um, yeah, not and that's it. That is the plot, really. Mm. And it's you know, there's sort of interesting interactions in between there. It's one thing I did quite like as well, actually. That's established mm. right at the start is now that Earth has now become a matriarchal society, mm. which is probably the way forward in the, in real life. I would suggest it you is know, based on how the world is right now. I wouldn't mind it. It would be great in a lot of ways. I'm with you on that point. I'd picked up on that too, because then I wondered how it plays out in the film. I'm not sure where we see that being important. I don't know if you... Not really. I mean, I suppose (laughs) you've you've got... (laughs) Because then, as you said, he's still a sex pest. So clearly the matriarchal society that he has grown up in still allows him to sexually pester particularly one character, Natasha Henstridge's uh, lead. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, it's, I'm not, it's an interesting detail that I'm not sure goes anywhere. <laughs> I know, yeah. I mean, you get obviously the, the leader of the strike, police strike team is played by Pam Greer, so mm-hmm. there's a woman le- leading it. And then obviously, again, this, this whole film is told as one ex- sort of massive extended flashback. Mm. So that it starts with Natasha Henstridge's character being cross-examined by this panel and the leader of which is a woman as well mm-hmm. so it does establish that women are in, are in the positions of power but like you said it doesn't really play out during the course of the film because of the way <laughs> the way his character behaves yeah um but it's a good i like the concept of it being a matriarchal society in the future um and where and, and where that goes and it doesn't like you said in some ways it's quite good that it doesn't sort of make any massive um, mm. impacts on the plot because it's not say it's not into saying right women are in charge now and uh, you know women are, are in the positions of dominance I should say rather than the traditional sort of male counterparts so because that's happened the earth uh, sorry not the earth the way in which society is run is now like this I suppose in a way he's just saying well what's what is the difference there is no difference you know when if you put the women in those positions of power in essence, like I said, life would probably be a lot better. But in essence, the, the world carries on as, as it was. Maybe that was what he was trying to say. I really don't know. No. I mean, like you say, I, that's, I think you've argued around that quite nicely there. I think Carpenter would appreciate your 
your backing up of his idea of, of the matriarchy and perhaps it's just it's important to say maybe this is where we should go rather than making a big deal of it pam yeah. greer though she can act we know she can i'm not she's she's trying to be bothered in this movie though she is awful <laughs> she's not alone in this film she's not alone. no you're right um yeah, yeah. I mean, she's only sort of, what, three or four years post-Jackie Brown here. Mm. So a sort of star had been sort of reascended at that point by being the star of a Tarantino movie. And I suppose by here, she's going back on that sort of downward curvature again from yeah. being, you know, considered a big star again. Yeah, she is pretty terrible in it, I'll be honest. Um, again, I don't want to badmouth Pam Grey because she's a no. legendary actress and she's done loads of stuff I really have enjoyed over the mm-hmm, years mm-hmm. Uh, and continue to. She's great. But yeah, I think she's phoning it in here. Um, she really is in, in, her, in, her, in her interactions. I mean, to be fair, she's not on screen that long. She's probably only on sc- her screen time. It's probably 10 to 15 minutes mm-hmm. max because, you know, I don't know how much you want to spoil on this show, but she's... Oh, let's we spo- spoil it all. Go for it. All oh, right. Okay. Uh, well, all right. She gets killed. <laughs> she gets yeah. killed off halfway through. Um, Not even that. Probably, as you said, she's the first one to go, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. She's the first one to uh, fight the bullet in a in a really horrific way as well. Mm. Actually. Um, so yeah, she's not in it that much. So I think she was just there for a decent payday, maybe. But I mean, you hit the nail on the head when you after you watched this and we were speaking about it the other day. You were saying about the acting in this film or. or lack thereof <laughs> oh with some exceptions the acting in this is woeful isn't it it's pretty well yeah woeful is the right word and i think i i absolutely agree with your background pam Greer. i'm not bad mouthing her at all i think she just couldn't be bothered here and i think she was probably there for a couple of days to get oh, to yeah, get the cash that. and get out i mean her character's even killed off screen we don't even get to see it happen they clearly yeah. had like run out of their time with her and couldn't didn't want to pay out any more money to get her back to, to yeah. film her actual death scene um, <laughs> and I think you know it's interesting reading it now uh, reading stuff about it now watching it in 2022 that sense of who she is as a character you know she mm. is perhaps portrayed portraying her character as being gay she seems to be making advances towards Natasha Henstridge she's obviously black oh yeah so they kill off the black lesbian first but you know Slightly problematic when you watch it from the 2022 lens, isn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm sure he didn't mean yeah. anything by it, but no, I guess I guess not. You know, I suppose he's, he has to kill off the leader of the team so her character can step mm. up and become the the leader of the group, which is what she becomes. She's the leading lady of the film, so I suppose she you've is. got to do away. You've got to do away with the the, the leader of the squad so someone mm. else can can rise up. But yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, you're killing off a, a, a minority figure um so yeah there is some problematic elements to it mm. um and i wish she'd st- stuck around longer because as 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 woeful as her acting isn't it at least she is a screen presence and is able to elicit some personality and some emotion and natasha hensridge as as the de facto star of this film is the lieutenant who takes her spot as the leader once she's killed and just she doesn't i mean you know she she'd done species what five or six years mm. before this and that made her a hot property for a few years in, in hollywood um, i mean for a particular reason right yeah i guess not so. for her acting <laughs> no i guess i guess not to be fair and and but i mean there's none of that in this film that's for sure and no. i think 
her sort of level of, of personality in this film is so one note throughout mm. this film. There's no there's no up or down to her performance. She's just very sort of on the level all the way through. I mean, you know, maybe that's what she was told to do. I don't know. But she never goes up or down, even when she's allegedly high off drugs or, mm. you know, when she's when she's um, infected by the, the ghosts, uh, albeit temporarily. There just never seems to be any up or down to her performance. And I just, you know, when you read about it, she actually wasn't the first choice for this role. Right, and I, yeah. I, don't know if this, I don't know if this is true, but I read this on Wikipedia, so everything on Wikipedia must be taken with a soup son of salt. But it says here that the original first choices for the role were Michelle Yeoh, Frank Jansen and Franco Patente. Mm-hmm. And they all must have turned it, they turned it down. So then they didn't go into Natasha Henshaw after that. They cast Courtney Love, mm. right? Courtney Love, the the, uh, the sing- lead singer from Hole. It to be fair, has done acting. She was quite good mm-hmm. in the People versus Larry Flynn. Mm-hmm. You know, she she can act. There's no there's no question about it. But it says here she was originally cast, and then she left the project after her boyfriend's ex-wife ran over her foot in her car while she was in training <laughs> for the film. There you go. Mm. And then Natasha Henshaw replaced her because her boyfriend at the time. Um, is one of the other, who's basically the other male in the police unit that's mm, not mm-hmm. Jason Statham, the other guy who's so inconsequential, I can't remember what his name is or what his character's name is, but they were an item at the time. And he said, look, you know, my other half is Natasha Henstridge and she's not doing much because I think she literally went in at no notice. It was like a Michael Bean in Aliens right, kind yeah. of vibe where, you know, they literally were like, shit, production's going to start and we have no one. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, my, my girlfriend's available and she's a, she's a name. And they went, right, mm-hmm. get her in. So I think it does show, though, doesn't it? She doesn't seem particularly invested in it. No. I love that Michael Bean comparison in terms of the situation, but I'm sure we both agree, not in terms of the quality of actor or performance, because he's phenomenal Michael, in The Terminator. It, Michael Bean is badass in everything. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's a shame we don't see more of him in things. He is just... The, the, one of the greatest sort of understated action men of the 80s. He was fantastic. And um, it's always good when he pops up in stuff. Like he was in um, he was in The Mandalorian, mm. wasn't he? He was in an episode of that. I think he popped up in the, an episode of The Walking Dead. But other than that, you don't really see him much. And it's a shame because he is still a badass. Agreed. You picked the scene out which stood out to me for Natasha Hentridge, which is when she's been possessed by the ghost spirits. Yeah which we're, we're going to have to get into that massive plot hole in a minute. Um, and then she, she, it's been established earlier on that she uh, is addicted to some sort of stimulant, some sort of drug, but yeah. she's got it under enough control that she can sort of take it. And the uh, Pam Greer's character sees her doing it. It's kind of like, make sure you're not too high when we get to do the mission. So she's got it under some sort yeah. of control, but it means it's constantly in her system. So yes. Desolation then gives her one of her pills, doesn't he, once she's been possessed yes which forces the mars spirit out of her and that's the scene you were talking about where the acting is absolutely atrocious yes yeah Uh, i just it's one of those scenes where i almost had to look away from the screen because you know (laughs) when you watch ricky gervais you're meant to be cringing but this had that same effect on me as i was watching it It was terrible yeah it's 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 not great it's not great but to be fair to natasha henshaw she's not alone in this film oh you know? no i mean i it's you know terrible much Sorry, like turn it up i think the statham comes out of this 
really, really well. And I think, you know, we, we, we've identified he clearly had charisma. He probably had a good agent. He had these unseen abilities, which hadn't been tapped into yet, but perhaps he was showing off in auditions and, and, and tapes and stuff. But he also mm-hmm. keeps getting himself cast in movies against people who are really, really shit. So he, <laughs> by, by comparison, looks really good. Yeah. He's a very clever man, isn't he? And his representatives are very clever. That's a great way to, to build your career, isn't it? Mm. Star opposite shit and you'll shine. Wow. That's he has to give like a rallying clever. speech, doesn't he, towards the end? And actually, yeah. it's, you know, it, it's up there. You know, it's not like up there with Braveheart or uh, anything like that. But he, he does a decent job. And I think, again, by, it's by comparison to what we've witnessed over the last... 90 or so minutes before from everyone else yeah no he's, he's again very fine in it i mean i guess we can talk about his character and the, the problematic mm. elements of his character um, i mean it probably doesn't fly quite so well now 20 years on probably didn't back then thinking about it either but his um shall we say his dogged pursuit Mm. of Natasha Henstridge's character literally from the very first scene where you meet them all when they're on the train on their way in you know and they're just sort of you know establishing what's going to go on and everything and literally up till just before he dies he he is literally just trying to just get in into uh, her knickers for the entire film isn't mm. he? I, I've always found this this like trope very strange and I know, yeah. like, I think Tony's spoken about before as well on his podcast, the sense of, like, you're in this life or death situation, and for some reason, you're thinking about getting it on. Like, surely, how is that not the furthest thing from your mind? I suppose there's that argument of, like, if you're horny teenagers in, it, like, off in the woods and you know it's the apocalypse, mm. like, well, we might as well, because, you know, we're going to die. But when you mm. are literally, like, there's zombified people on the door outside, shall mm. we? It's very odd. It is. I just, I think if that was me in that situation, I just would not be in any mood or any state <laughs> to, to, to perform in that situation. <laughs> I don't, I would, the I would screams of my colleagues dying gets me off. It's very weird. Exactly. exactly. I, I get the element where you think, well, this could be my last chance in my life because we could potentially die. Mm-hmm. But the fact that I, the fact that I could potentially die would literally negate any sort of sexual feelings I had towards anybody at that point, it would literally just be like, kill it dead. I think mm. it, it is. It, yeah. It's a, it's a very dated character type, isn't it? That he's playing in this. He essentially exists to yeah try and get in her pants and to open doors. There is two skills. Yeah. We need this door open. Come on, Jason Statham. We need to make Natasha Henstridge uncomfortable. Come on, Jason Statham. Yeah, yeah, he's very good with a keypad, isn't he? uh, (laughs) It's yeah. To to get get through these locked doors, but yeah, and but it's the way he speaks as well, isn't it? Some of the the stuff he comes out with, he's not he's not like doing it in a sort of subtle, flirty kind Mm. of roguish way. He's really sort of explicit with it and Mm. aggressive, unsubtle. And yeah, he's like one of those kind of guys who refuses to take no for an answer. I mean, you know, some of the stuff comes out with as well when she's she makes some she makes some wisecrack about how men exaggerate, you know, saying mm. like she holds up her fingers like that and saying, Yeah, and that's eight inches, isn't it? And then he goes, Well, yeah, I've got the opposite problem. And, all this. <laughs> and then he's and then he says and then he says to her, 
maybe a connoisseur like yourself would appreciate what I have to offer. Mm. It's like, come on, who says that? Who says that? First of all, calling her a connoisseur, so you're essentially saying that she's a slag. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and then you're sort of bragging about what you've got down there. You know, it's just like it seems like a lot of empty bluster, really. And it's it is quite uncomfortable, isn't it? When I rewatched it tonight, I watched it with Sarah, my other half, mm. and I did I did feel quite uncomfortable with those moments you know having my other half sat with me because it's it's just not quite pleasant is it no and i think that the trouble is it's played for laughs isn't it or, or it, it, yeah mostly. these things are okay if they're denigrated right if you say like this is not the way to behave but unfortunately mm. she caves to his charms by the end of the yeah you know, by the end of the movie say so i'm not sure what message that's sending either Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you um, behave like that, lads, eventually they'll come round to your way of thinking or Absolutely, something like yeah. that. No doesn't mean no. If you just keep going, she'll eventually say yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But mm. like you said, it does work for him in the end. And, you know, if they weren't sort of rudely interrupted by some catastrophe happening, he mm. would have got his end. He would have got his end away. Um, but what it does do, actually, and I, I, I read this, I think it's true. I, yeah, it must be because it's on like his full film. This was the first ever on-screen kiss for Mrs. Stephen. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Because I guess in Lockstock and Snatch, you didn't kiss anyone. And no. I've I've yet to see Turn It Up, but I know obviously you've recently watched it and I'm mm. guessing he gets no no action in that either. No action in that, I'm afraid. No, so that's, that's spot on. Yeah, this is his first on-screen kiss. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's quite a landmark moment for him, I suppose. I suppose, but, yeah. he, but the way he gets it is in such an unappealing and mm. wrong, wrong way. It's just, it's not a... It's just not a good look. I mean, again, it's no reflection on him. He's playing a character here. Let's yeah. get let's get real. But it's it's just not a not a good look in this day and age. I don't think. I don't. I don't think you would get that anymore in a film of this type. Definitely not. And you know, if you think about other John Carpenter characters, you think about Jack Burton in Big Trouble in Little China. He's kind of similar mm. in that way. He's he's kind of dogged pursuit of of women of that he he's attracted to. But he's such a doofus that yeah. It, it, it's skewed that you you judge him for it. I know, I know he is a likable character. I don't know. I don't know. There's just a fine line where you get that character right, you get it wrong. And I think Jack Burton in Big Trouble is played just right by mm. by that being Kurt Russell's in, inherent charm or charisma or acting ability or how he makes that a, a character. And I think maybe if Statham got this later in his career, he might have done something a bit more with it. But yeah, at this point, mm. it just doesn't work. No, it, it doesn't. It's, it's quite uncomfortable. But at the same time, you never truly think his character is a complete bastard because, you no. know, he's, he's, he's sort of steadfast to the job. He doesn't sort of sell out any of his team. He's there for them. You know, when the time comes to sort of do what they've got to do, he's, he's in there at the front of it. Mm. You know, so although he's kind of really sort of gross in his pursuit of, of um, the Melanie Ballard character, his character is redeemed by all his other actions he's he's brave mm. he's 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 honest i guess he is honest you mm-hmm. know in a, in a weird way um and you know goes out fighting as well literally you know it's quite quite an end he gets he gets the kind of classic zombie movie ripped to pieces death doesn't he he does but you don't see it do you because i Sadly. guess again maybe budgetary reasons mm-hmm. he, he literally sort of gets overwhelmed and sort of piled on but mm-hmm. then you never, you don't really see more than a, a couple of seconds of them sort of piling on. Mm-hmm. So you don't see how, if, if they're sort of, what they're actually doing to him underneath that, you know. Um, so that's, it's, it's a bit of a shame. But um, 
again, though, it's it, it well as his first kiss. This must be one of his few on-screen deaths. I know he dies in in obviously the one we've just mentioned mm-hmm. your, your last ep- your last episode, and he obviously dies in this. But I can't think of many other no. films that he's been in where he actually dies. Are, are there any others? That, I can't think of any. No, that's interesting. Not not off the top of my head. No. Mm. No, I suppose if you're a, if you're an action leading man, mm. then you tend most ninety nine percent of the time you don't get killed off, do you? So no, I and mean, he's the yeah. bad guy in cellular, cellular, isn't he? Is what I was going to say. So right. maybe in that, yeah. but it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. So until I, I get to rewatch it, I couldn't say for sure. Yeah, well, that's one of the ones I haven't seen, so um, mm. I can't I can't comment on that. But I guess yeah, if he's the bad guy, he probably does. Yeah, mm. but it, even when he was the bad guy in Fast and Furious, he sort of just gets locked up and then he's a good guy by the next film. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, there's, there's many ways out of these things, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting way, but he has some good stuff in the film, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some, there's some good stuff to hang your hat on his, his, his faces that he pulls are really quite something I found. Like when he finds Pam Greer's sort of mm. severed head on a stake, rather than being like, Oh shit. He pulls this really weird face where he's like, like, like trying to, he looks sort of confused. I don't, you know, whether at this point he hadn't sort of developed the full range of acting skills, <laughs> but he, he really just pulls some strange faces when all this everything's going to shit around him. He, he, he pulls his face where he looks kind of angry and confused, yet also, I don't know, maybe a little constipated. I'm not sure, but it's a very, <laughs> very interesting range of faces he pulls in this film. Yeah, I think. I agree. And I think like his line delivery isn't always quite there yet either, is there? Because straight after this scene, it stood out to me when he's like reporting back over the radio of what's going on. It's just, he's just found his captain dead and decapitated. Good amount of decapitations in this movie. Um, And then he's seen this whole like horde of less Martian people. And he reports back like, I think we're in a bit of a situation here. There's no like urgency. There's no fear. There's no like, yeah. We're definitely towards the start of his career, perhaps in, in in line delivery and facial expression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also got the short straw when it came to the goggles as well, because every, everyone else has these like Natasha Hentridge character. They're just kind of kind of badass wraparound like mm. glasses. They look quite cool actually. Pam Grey is the same, and I don't know him whether he was last to the props basket or something. <laughs> but he has these massive like ski goggles on throughout the entire film, and you know when it. Obviously, he doesn't wear them where they're inside, but every time they go out into the Mars atmosphere, mm. he's got these like Dennis Taylor style full full <laughs> face goggles on. It just looks really weird at some, you know, at some point you're kind of like just laughing at him because mm. he's wearing they're just so bizarre. But you know, I guess that's kind of the, the appeal to him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't think he's got seems to have a good sense of humor about himself. I'm sure he didn't care really. Nah, probably not. He was getting paid, wasn't he? So once you've been in that so, shaming video, you know, it's all up from there. That's true. Yeah, at least he wasn't spray-painted silver <laughs> and gold and having to dance in his Speedos, you know. Exactly. I, I guess, uh, yeah, wearing a pair of goggles is nothing to him, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, he, he, he does well with what he's given, I think, in this film. You know, it's, it's, it's not, when you look at his CV as a whole from top to bottom, I think the films he did, the first two films he did in his career were better than this one. And I think after this, there's a lot better than this sort of in his oeuvre. But yeah, he's fine. He's fine. It's a, it's not a great film, but it's not down to him. I think he mm. he delivers he delivers what he has to. I mean, it's I mean, 
the film itself is is okay. It's watchable. It's serviceable, but it it doesn't live up to much. I don't think it's a shame. Um, one thing I was going to mention to you actually is, mm. as well is what, what I'd love to get your take on it. Is for me the very the very opening of the film obviously shows the train coming back from <laughs> the situation, and mm-hmm. Natasha Hentry just is literally the sole survivor, handcuffed to the bed. She's been left there, and then obviously she gets this hearing where she has to lay it out to them as to what's happened. Do you think that was a really bad choice to start the film with? Because it, in effect, spoils the fate of everybody else in the film. Because from there, you get to meet her unit, and, you know, there's, there's Natasha Hentry, there's Jason Statham, you know, there's all these other people you get to meet. And because it's only her comes back, I mean, obviously, I can't say whether or not there's someone else who survives to the end, but... Mm-hmm. Do you not think it's a bad choice because it spoils, in a way, what's to come? Because you think you're right, they're dead, they're dead, mm. they're dead, or, or not, you know? I know exactly what you're saying. It's the trouble with all framing devices in this way, isn't it? Is that you know yeah. the fate of that character, and that leads you into believing you know the fate of everyone else's. I guess here, because you know the type of movie you're watching going in, you know nearly everybody's going to die anyway, yeah. other than the main character. So I think I found more of an issue was the flashbacks within the flashbacks within the flashbacks within the flashbacks (laughs) in in a film that really as you said is pretty straightforward in terms of the student needs to go there and get this guy and get out and they can't because Mm. of this issue but then you start Mm. getting like the the flashbacks of the three guys that statham finds in the tool shed and what happened to them and then you get the flashback of um joanna castley's character the doctor and how she discovered his tomb yes it it starts like spiraling in terms of all these different different flashbacks that are mostly unnecessary to be honest that that don't add add too much to it yeah i guess it, maybe carpenter's trying to be a bit too clever with his own mm. script here mm-hmm. i don't know it's it's you know i get i get what they're doing but it just like you said it, it's completely unnecessary isn't it they could have just told the story in a linear fashion they didn't really need to have it in this way going in and out of time periods and then seeing things from one person's perspective and then another, you know, mm, you get that almost Rashomon that, type idea, don't you? Rash, Rashomon. Yeah. Or, or appropriately for Statham, Wrath of Man. Nice. I like it. That's the same kind of method, isn't it? That it is, tells yeah. the same, this exactly the same story from four or five different perspectives before mm-hmm. bringing it all together at the end. Um, and there was a, oh, there was another film like that a few years ago. What was it called now? Vantage Point. I don't yeah, I saw that too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With um, Dennis Quaid and Matthew Fox and um, mm. a few other people. Might be Forrest Whitaker, might be in it. But again, that told you the exact same series of events, but then replayed it from literally different vantage points. But that kind of works because that's not just retelling the story. It's you're seeing it from a completely different set of eyes. Whereas this is just filling in narrative blanks, isn't it? It is. It's not, it's not adding a twist on things. Rather than someone just telling you where they've been and what they've done, they have to then go off and do this scene where it shows you what they've done. But mm. like you said, they don't, they're not really, it's not really needed. Like when Ice Cube says how he ended up there, he's like, oh yeah, I was, you know, I was going to catch a train and then, you know, went to shit. And it literally just show, it literally just shows him opening a door walking into a room with a shotgun and everyone's hung up from the ceiling with no heads because of what's happened. Mm. But that's it. It's completely superfluous, isn't it? It is, yeah. It, I, I don't think a single one... I mean, maybe the flashback of how the the spirits got released. It, we could have we could have watched that, but we didn't need to see the Doctor's yeah. character like in a hot air balloon 
like glider thing coming and like all of the yeah, all of pretty necessary and certainly the three guys who jason satan finds in a tool shed like <laughs> fine just bring them bring them with you we don't need to know how they got there and, and their their backstory either yeah, you hinted yeah. though that um natasha henshaw's may not be the only survivor mm. and we learn don't we that ice cube's desolation was with her on the train he does survive after having the showdown with the with the final uh what's he called big daddy mars yes he has yes. a showdown with him on the train and defeats him where he does a darth vader no and gets exploded <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we get a stinger scene right at the end what did you think of the stinger scene when natasha henshaw's has been cleared i suppose of of any wrongdoing in the trial and then she wakes up the next morning there's screams in the oh. background and here is desolation what did you think I like the concept of it being that they didn't kill the alien spirits and now mm-hmm. they've sort of they've drifted on drifted from that outpost to this big city and now mm-hmm. the exact same thing is going to happen in the city. I like that concept of it. But the ridiculousness of him not so much that he comes in to find her because you can you sense that they formed a bit of a bond mm-hmm. through she the She lets him go actually, doesn't she? Exactly, yeah, exactly. She could have she could have shot shot him I suppose and he could have killed her, I guess. So they've, they've, they've grown to respect each other and what they bring to the table. But that awful bit straight after that where they sort of get tooled up, they've got the guns, and, you know, that awful, that awful line about, she's, she's like, you know, you could if you were a good guy, you'd be a great cop or something. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, well, you know, you'd make a great crook or something like this. And, they, and then they look at each other and then go, nah. Then let's just shoot our way out or something, yeah. and and then it ends. Oh Jesus, wept! It's a it's a terrible way to end the film, you know. It's awful, I, isn't it? If it was massively tacked on as well, like and the arrogance to think that we're going to get a sequel to this. Oh, the fucking balls on John Carpenter, <laughs> thinking that people wanted to see more. My mm. God Almighty, because um, it would have just been, it would have literally been more of the same, I guess. Yeah, um, because. The, the whole thing about this ghost of Mars is essentially it's look of the draw as to whether you get possessed by one. Mm-hmm. Because whenever you kill someone who is possessed, the spirit leaves their body. Mm. And then you, there's the shots in the film where you kind of, you're seeing things through the spirit's eyes, aren't you? Yeah. Point where of view. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially just puts a red filter on the lens and, mm. and um, they, they kind of weaves in and out of everyone. And then the randomly just goes up someone's ear and that's mm. their new host. But, so there's no way to actually survive it other than just being lucky, are you really? Because yes, you can kill everything in front of you and be a badass and all the rest of it. But essentially, once the, the spirits are in the air, the ghosts are in the air, if they're going to come in through your ear and possess you, what the hell are you going to do mm. to stop them? I don't know. Walk, walk around with a headset on or something? I don't know. Well, as we find out, there's only one thing you can do, which is take drugs, which force them out. But yet nobody yeah. seems to do that in order to make sure they don't get possessed, which is that first massive plot hole I was alluding to earlier, that yeah. they discover there's kind of a way to stop it happening, uh, but they decide, now nah, we just we just won't bother. Um, and the other thing I thought, which was crazy... Oh, go on, go on, go on. You had a thought. No, I'm, agree- I'm agreeing with you, yeah, because he saw her literally come back from, yeah. from it. So why didn't they all go, oh, I know, and then all takes on. Yeah, stupid, yeah. Because the other thing, you know, you were just saying, like, the, you get this kind of um, handheld, yeah, like it's almost like... Sam Raimi, Evil Dead camera movement through the through the air, much yeah. less technically proficient and interesting, but um, and then people get possessed. 
Yeah. Why don't they just shoot these things in the leg and immobilize them? They keep killing yeah. all these possessed people. It's just, I know like we shouldn't often pick these things apart afterwards because, you know, but they just, it's just, you know, Carpenter is a smart guy. We know he is. He's proved it with the mm. movies he's made. Yeah, yeah. All I could think all the way through was like, you know, if you kill this person, you are going to get, like, like it's you and me right in a room. You're possessed. If I shoot you, it's going to possess me. So well, I wouldn't yeah. shoot you to kill you, would I? I would shoot you to immobilize you and run away. I just, I couldn't get over it. And it just ruined the rest of the movie for me. <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, it, it defies logic, doesn't it? It's like, they don't, they seem to make the wrong choices at every turn. Mm. Um, but yeah, why would you, why would you do that? You know, if you've got the choice and, and by then they've established how it works as well, haven't they? Mm. So when they're having that big shootout at the end, it's not like a case of, oh, I'll just fucking kill them all because that's the way we're going to survive this. They, they know at this point that that's how the transmission works. Mm. So yeah, so yeah, why don't, why don't they do things like that? All they're going to do is just release thousands of spirits into, into the atmosphere. Which is essentially what happens because they go mm. back, don't they? They've actually escaped at one point and there's a few of them left on that train, three or, three or four of them or something, and the mm-hmm. driver, and they've, they've, they've got away. And then they go, no, we need to go back and, and finish this once and for all by, I don't know what they do, they overload the... Yeah, like the nuclear reactor I don't know. Me, isn't it? Yeah, leave the fucking oven switched on or something, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but do something that basically creates like a, the equivalent of a nuclear explosion and wipes out the, the town, which will do that. But like you said, in doing that, they kill hundreds of these mm. infected zombie-type characters. But in doing that, that releases this massive plume of red gas into the air spirits, which is exactly then at the end what's creeping towards the city right at the end of the film. Yeah. So they brought it on them. <laughs> they brought it on themselves, you know, because they could have at least got to the city before all the um, infected hordes mm. and then go, right, they, this is what's happened. They, they're probably going to find a way here at some point so this is how what we need to do to stop them not i don't know we'll blow them up and then just deal with the red cloud when it gets here (laughs) stupid 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 i think stupid is probably the the buzzword for this movie sadly yeah it is but you know it's it's enjoyable yeah you can always pick holes in these kind of films Mm -hmm, can't you mm -hmm. Uh, you know holes of logic and of characters choices and things but Mm. you know it's Again, it's not the kind of film you should watch with your critical eye and thinking cap on, is it really? It's just one you should just disengage your brain and, you know, try and enjoy for 90 minutes. Yeah, can. definitely. And it looks like a lot of people do, you know, as you said, we said, it's got, it's certainly got its big cult following. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, like I said, Carpenter remains a big figure despite mm. his sort of, I guess, virtual retirement now, but he's still, you know, he's still a presence on, on the scene, he goes and does sort of live concerts now because obviously he writes the score for most of his films and mm. he's a musician. And my friend went to see him in Manchester, you know, probably three or four years ago. I'm really jealous, but he, he goes and puts on these live shows where, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, like Hans Zimmer does with an orchestra and they'll, they'll play yeah. pieces he's written to footage of mm-hmm. from the various films. Carpenter does the same, but it's like a, like a rock band set up and, you know, synths and they'll play his iconic piece of music from his film with footage playing behind them and things like that. That which is cool. really cool. So he's very, yeah. yeah. So he's very much still a, a key figure and a, a present figure. So as long as that's the case, a lot of the people who've gone check out his film. Definitely. And he's doing all the music for all the new Halloweens, isn't he? 
at the moment. Right, yeah, of course. He's still hands-on, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it's at the end of the day, it's it, the Halloween characters are his creations, mm-hmm. so obviously. You know, I guess I don't know whether he has to, whether he still has a piece of the rights. So I don't I guess that, that franchise has been through so many guises and, you know, studios and whatnot. I don't know whether that's the case, but um, yeah, he, he, you know, he is one of my favourite directors. Yeah, there's mm. no two ways about it. The films, you know, his his best films are up there with with anything in terms of like genre cinema. It's just a shame that, you know, there's films like this and then, um, John Carpenter's Vampires as well, which isn't so great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, is is sort of more latter-day output. But, you know, there was a time there where, from the sort of late 70s right up to probably the late 80s, where everything he touched was gold, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. All right, so before we wrap up, we've just been speaking about music. I wanted to get your thoughts as, you know, a music man, what you thought of the soundtrack office. Because obviously Carpenter led on on what he composed but then he collaborated yeah. with some amazing people so but looking up there was anthrax steve vi buckethead mm. rob robin yeah. fink like all these names which probably a few are going like pink like pinging off on your brain about bands they're in and songs they've done i'd to look most of them up if i'm honest but <laughs> yeah i wonder what you thought about the soundtrack oh i love the soundtrack and i think it suits the kind of film it is that mm-hmm. kind of heavy heavy metal thrash metal kind of soundtrack with like you said those names you just reeled off you know all big names in the world of metal and hard rock it fits the tone of the film i think it works really well it's it doesn't take a while to get to that stage at the start mm. when you get the footage of the um really cool like miniature footage uh, model footage of the train Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of you know on its way there and that music is very carpenter here it, might, it reminds me a little bit of this the opening music to big trumpet little china that kind of chugging driving kind of music i really like that but then yeah once like kind of the shit hits the fan and, and we get to the sort of the action and the nitty-gritty when that metal guitar starts coming in i think it works perfectly for what you're seeing on the screen and mm-hmm. you know it, 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 i think if you'd have had like a more traditional score you know orchestral stuff or synth stuff i don't think it would have worked so well. i think this i think this works for the tone and the imagery of the film what did you think yeah i think um yeah i think it has that kind of as you said like metal aesthetic to it, isn't it i've seen a lot of people compare big daddy mars to marilyn manson in terms of his look so i think <laughs> it, it's entirely what he was aiming for you can you know i think that was the the sound matched what he wanted to do with the visuals. I think whether it all came together is up for debate, but I think it, yeah, I think what he intended is what we got. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's good. It, it does work really well. Actually. I don't mind trying to pick a, pick a mm-hmm. copy up or something like this and listen to it in isolation. I know they brought it out yeah, on good. vinyl and I think it's like the, you know, 20 year anniversary of the movie or something. I think they brought it out. So it's out there. Um, I might try and procure a copy then because it's that's the kind of music I'm into, I'll be honest. Mm. So it's um yeah, it's right up my alley, so to speak. Yeah. All right. So before I get your, you know, the, the most important, your guest rating, before I get what you, you think of this film and the state within it. Yeah. I've procured a couple of uh, opinions from Letterboxd, which is what I'm going to use for this show. Try yeah. I'm trying to get a range. I've got a couple of interesting ones. So first one I've got is from He Who Can Dig It. Part of the fun of this is, is getting the cool names that people come up with. Um, he says, the narrative is all over the place. The acting is just as campy as a dialogue and the film looks older than it really is. Uh, I do love that model train, though, which you just mentioned, which is cool. Mm. 
Ice Cube desperately tries to be badass, but by now you probably why they didn't give that role to Statham. It's Carpenter at his worst, wildest or pulpiest, take your pick. So I think what I'm finding interesting is that often the things that people come on and discuss are often what is out there generally in the public consciousness about this. He's backing up a lot of the stuff that you've said, I think. Yeah, it's, I think that's just how people think of think of the film, don't they? I think the opinions mm. of it are quite quite consistent across the board. You know, I think you'd have to be a a special kind of individual to love this film, like <laughs> like unapologetically like love it, and not in like a, a not ironic, but you know, in like a campy mm. kind of way that people like so bad it's good type of films. You know, things like this. But I think yeah, I think I've never seen anyone say, oh, oh, God, I love Ghost of Mars. Oh, what a film. It's, my, it's one of my favourites. I've never heard anyone say that. I hope mm. I hope to one day, though. Yeah, there's definitely going to be people out there. Yeah. Uh, Steve G, though, not such a big fan. He says, one of the John Carpenter films I hadn't seen, with good reason, clearly. Well, it's bloody awful. <laughs> he says, it reminds him of a straight-to-video early 90s sci-fi actioner, which I think is, is pretty accurate. And the cast is hardly an ensemble to remember. Natasha Henstridge, Clea DeVal, Ice Cube and Jason Statham have all had their moments and been in some fine films, but they're all completely terrible here. Oh, poor Statham. Uh, Statham is uncomfortably sleazy with his constant sex pestering of Henstridge as well. I still don't understand the point of this bit of storyline. If it was to set up Statham to end up being an arsehole later on, then fair enough. But it doesn't. He's legitimately meant to be one of the good guys. And what makes the thing worse is that then she then falls for it, despite showing no interest in him at all beforehand. So again, like, spot on for what we've commented on ourselves. I don't disagree with any of that, to be honest with you. You know, I think they've got it bang to rights. Mm. Last one. Wood says, it's a terrible John Carpenter movie, but it's a pretty good Ice Cube movie and an incredible Jason Statham movie. Which I'm not sure what to make of that. I think he's being derogatory about our man Statham. Yeah, I, I kind of think he's saying it's it's better than in his eyes mm. the shitty the shitty does elsewhere, which is complete bollocks. How it's, dare he? It's, it's exactly it's it's one of the the lowest on the rung of, of Statham's catalogue, I think. Um, in terms of box office and rating, definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, people can make of it what they will. You know, it's all horses for courses, but hey. it's just. <laughs> yeah, I had to slip that in. Sorry, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it it is what it is. It's just one of those films, isn't it? It's kind of a it's a moment in time. It's very dated. It was very dated when it came out. Mm. Um, it was I think it was a film that was probably made ten years too late. Um, yeah, you know, I think it would have been if it had been made early nineties, it probably would have been looked on a lot fonder, or even late eighties. I think it would probably be. Mm held up as a bit more of something than it really is. But I think it was just, I don't want to say too little too late, but maybe it is. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. It feels like, when you look at the films we referenced, particularly from Carpenter's own back catalogue, where he's almost kind of remaking himself to an extent at this point. Dated is definitely the right word. I think so. I think so. I think he'd at this point, he'd maybe slightly run out of steam, if I'm being Mm. honest. Mm. So in that case, in terms of the state filmography, You've got a choice. Would you consider it a classic, worth catching, or for completists only? I, well, it's certainly not a classic, so we can scrub that one off the mm-hmm. list right away. 
but I, I think I think it kind of falls between sort of the grey area between the other two categories you mentioned. Mm-hmm. In, in my in my opinion, anyway, I think it is worth watching because there's some good stuff in there, um, and in the day, it's quite fun. It's not, you know, it's not a dour film. There's fun to be had, mm-hmm. but it's just not particularly well executed. It's not particularly well acted, and it's not particularly good. <laughs> but it, <laughs> but it does have it does have its moments, and there is something there that you can enjoy. But it doesn't really. I wouldn't say it's time to repeat viewing. Mm. So I, I wouldn't put it right in the bottom of the category, and I wouldn't put it in the middle. I'd put it maybe two thirds in the bottom, and one third sort of trying to inch into that middle ground if that makes sense so basically worth catching if you're a completist yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, i guess so yeah yeah (laughs) what do you reckon it's i mean yeah of the uh, i'm just gonna i'm gonna try and put what's coming later out of my mind as much as i can doing this so that's why i've been a real stickler for doing this in order and you know watching and then recording before i watch the next one of the four i've seen so far this is worth catching yeah Yeah, yeah. where it all lands in 38 films, 37 films time, it may slip down a bit. Yeah, I think when you finally get to the end of this Odyssey and you've captured all of his films, I think this is going to be pretty near the bottom, isn't it? Let's be yeah. honest. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> all right, mate. Well, um, thank you very much for coming on the show and I appreciate your unique perspective. This is due to come out in about a week's time, so I think I'm publishing on the 6th of June. What have you got coming up around that time that you can let people know about? Yeah, well, as we sit and record this, we, we, we record an episode three of our mandatory music and CD show tomorrow night as we record this. So it may or may not be. I think it will come out a couple of days after this mm, drops out, actually. Yeah, so, yeah, we did uh, the first couple of episodes. It's basically myself, Tony Farina and Dave Horrocks, where we're going back and reviewing classic albums from our youth, our childhood, our teenage years, our 20s, but sort of nothing much after that mm-hmm. um, and it is and it is purely a random selection we literally put you know scores of loads of different albums good bad and indifferent into the pot some i absolutely hate but some <laughs> the guys hate and some that we all are on the same page about so when we eventually get to those it should make for interesting listening but mm-hmm. it's literally just a random draw and that's what we discuss so we've done two the first one was the debut album by skid row and then the second one was physical graffiti by Led Zeppelin, and we're about to cut record number three, which is going to be pornography by Extreme. Mm. Bit of early nine, a bit of early nineties rock for you there, which we're going to record tomorrow night, and that should be a lot of fun. And then from there, who knows where it goes? There's some stinkers in there, some absolute red herrings in there. So you know, it should be some good. There'll be some. Eventually, I think the show will have something for everyone. But it's mm. uh, it's in its early days, but we're uh, we're enjoying it. That's for sure. Oh, it's been great fun because I've been, you know, as as I do as much again if it's comics or films or I, I try to keep keep a pace with, with you know all the different shows the comics emotion have got coming out. So I listen to the, each album before I listen to you guys talking about them, and it it's really interesting hearing your perspectives on it. And I was only listening to pornography earlier today, so yeah, I'm mm-hmm. I'm ready and prepared prepared for your for your next release. Yeah, it should be a good one. I think it's just, I think it's a criminally underrated album myself. So. I've been seen to get the other guys to take some it tomorrow, so we'll uh, we'll see what comes out of that. <laughs> oh, a little, little bit of an early. We're, we're getting a max exclusive here before the actual episode drops. Fantastic. Yeah, I've shown my hand a bit there, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. maybe in twenty four hours I'll change it. But uh, <laughs> there's still a, there's still a couple of stinkers on that album, so they'll get the treatment. But uh, we'll see how we go on. Bro, thank you, mate. Thank you.
And thank you everyone else for listening and partaking in this journey with me through the Stace Filmography. I have been I'm Jax Musings, and that's J-A-C-S, and you can find me on Twitter, where I am most active. You can also contact the show directly on Twitter under the name Back to the Filmog. Make sure you use the hashtag Follow the Filmography. This show has been presented to you by the Pop Grillers, a collection of hive minds who provide spoiler-free reviews of anything from pop culture in less time than it takes to listen to a song. I'm also a proud member of the Comics Emotion family, as you just heard. A super place full of the world's greatest people, dedicated to bringing you podcasts on a variety of geeky topics. So, please make sure you take the time to search, subscribe, and rate our shows whenever and wherever you listen. Until next time, be excellent to each other, and make sure you take the time to treat yourself too. I am Jack signing off. Yippee-ki-yay, movie lovers.